Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Varner. I don't deserve that. We're going to be studying Psalm 63 this morning. It says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. But those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word this morning. We ask God that the truth that is in it um, would be clear and easy to understand. Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts to love you, to respond to the steadfast love which you have shown toward us. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. The superscript to this psalm reads, The Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. There's at least two major times that we know of when David was on the run for his life in the wilderness of Judah. The first one was when Saul was chasing after him prior to David becoming king, but after he had already been anointed, and Saul was jealous. The other time was when David's own son, Absalom, chased him out of the palace and away into the wilderness of Judah. And sometimes it's hard to discern what the context of the psalm is, which one does it fit into. But I think for this psalm, we can see pretty clearly that this is referring to the time when David fled from his own son. Because in verse 11, it says, The king will rejoice in God. David would not have been so presumptuous as to call himself the king prior to actually ascending to the throne when he was fleeing from Saul. I think this is good evidence to show that David was on the run from his own son Absalom. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, um, we can see some of the context of what was going on. David was giving Absalom, his son, the cold shoulder. There was a family feud involving Absalom, his son Amnon, and his daughter Tamar, three of David's children. Absalom's brother Amnon raped Tamar, his sister, and Absalom hated him for it. And he let that hatred brew for two years until he took Amnon away for a sheep-shearing festival and commanded his own servants to go and kill his brother because he was so angry about what had happened to his sister. David didn't really do anything about it. He just kind of let it blow over and let his kids do their own thing. Absalom eventually fled away to Gesher, afraid of repercussions of his actions, and he lived there for three years alone and away from David's presence, not ever speaking to his father during that time. Joab, David's commander of the army, eventually got fed up with it and said, David, it's time to bring your son back. And through a clever plea before the king, he convinced David to let Absalom come back and live in Jerusalem. But David still would not talk to Absalom. And Absalom was fed up with it. In scripture, it says that he was a beautiful man, that from the top of his head, the crown of his head, to the soles of his feet, he was perfect. 
from foot to follicle. There was nothing wrong with this man. If you imagine in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan goes into the witch's um, palace, her castle, and in her courtyard, there's all these different statues everywhere, and he breathes on them, and they come to life. Imagine having Michelangelo's David statue in there, and having Aslan come and breathe on it and bring it to life. That would have been Absalom. He was a beautiful man, and he knew it, and he used it for his own purposes. He stood outside the gates of Jerusalem, and every man that came in to be heard in the courts of David, he said, unfortunately, David has no one to hear you. But if I were king, guess what? I would hear you. You could come directly to the king himself. You wouldn't even need to go to his courts. And four years later, after doing this every single day, David or Absalom had eventually stolen the hearts of all the men of Israel. And when he figured he'd gotten good and ready and well-respected well enough throughout all the land of Israel, he decided it was time to stage a coup. And so he told David, I must go away to Hebron. I'm going to go fulfill a vow. Yeah, right. He got to Hebron. <laughs> he sent men out through all of Israel, proclaiming that Absalom was king, and he was in Gesher, or in Hebron. And so David, of course, hears about it, just like the rest of Israel, and knows that it's high time for him to flee. And so he flees over the Mount of Olives and out into the wilderness of Judah. And while he's on the run for his life with his son in hot pursuit before him, behind him, we see him now pen this psalm, Psalm 63. There's a little bit of confusion as to the order of this psalm, the structure that's behind it. That's understandable. David's on the run for his life. He's not trying to pen a masterful systematic theology of his relationship with God. Instead, he's pouring out his heart before the Lord. And he's got one key central idea— that God's steadfast love is better than life. And he wants to express before the Lord the dedication that he has to his relationship with God, despite the turmoil that surrounds him. So we're going to break this psalm up into three sections. The word soul is a key word throughout the psalm. David is continually speaking about the relationship that his soul has to God's steadfast love. In verses 1 through 4, he says, My soul thirsts for you. In verses 5 through 7, he says, my soul is satisfied in you. And in verses 8 through 11 at the end of the psalm, he says, my soul clings to you. Those are the three main sections that we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's start in verse 1. He says that his soul thirsts for God, and in verse 1, he identified his thirst. If you guys think of an atheist, an atheist's claim to fame is their ability to state, there is no God. There's no God. A pagan, on the other hand, would wander around saying, God, oh God, where, where are you? And he can't find God until he finds an idol or something and claims that it's God. But here we see the psalmist, David, in a right relationship with God, proclaiming first and foremost, oh God, you are my God. It's not any God. It is his own God, and he knows it. Remember when Jacob when he was fleeing from Esau, his brother had the vision of the ladder between earth and heaven. In that vision, God spoke to Jacob. And when he spoke to Jacob, he said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and I am the God of Isaac. And then he promised Jacob two things. He said, you can have both this promised land and you can have my constant preserving presence. And do you know how Jacob responded to that? He didn't say thank you. He didn't praise God for God's willingness to pay attention to someone so low as him? No, he, he tested God. He said, God, if you give me food and clothing, then, after that, but only after that, 
Will you be my God? Jacob had it all wrong, but David did not. He knew that he had to begin first with a declaration of his faith, not with a doubt as to God's ability to provide for him. And I would exhort all of you as believers to begin first with declarations, not doubts, when you go before the Lord, if you want to be strong in faith. Let's look at the second half of the verse. He says, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. People who enjoy trying to survive in the wilderness and learn about those things will tell you that there's something called the rules of three. It's how they know how long they can survive in a given environment. It's an estimate. You can go about three minutes without, wa- without air. You can go about three days without water. You can go about three weeks without food. David chooses water for his analogy here. He says that his soul is thirsting after God, and he knows that he can only survive a matter of days without a relationship to the Lord before his life begins to fall apart around him. Everything else is in shambles, but the one thing that he focuses on maintaining, the one thing that he knows, is that he must seek out the source of living water. And he goes to the Lord for that. Let's look at verse 2 now. In verse 2, David cultivated his thirst. He cultivated his thirst. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Think of Joseph back in Egypt, when he knew that there were going to be seven years of famine coming. He recognized that there would be seven years of famine, and so he spent all the seven years before that of plenty, storing up all the grain of Egypt, so that not only Egypt, but every country around Egypt would have food during the seven years of famine, so that everyone would not perish. That's the kind of model that we want to follow. We know, all of us know, sooner or later, we're going to enter into trials. We're going to enter into difficult times in our lives, and we have to remember that while we are enjoying a, a right relationship with God, while we are enjoying opportunities like this to come into God's presence and fellowship with him without persecution, without difficulty perhaps in our own lives, we need to recognize that those are the times that we need to maximize and we need to use them for the glory of God. We need to do our best to enter into God's presence with a commitment to build our relationship to him. We can't come before him superficially. Calvin says it's noticeable of ignorant and superstitious persons that they seem full of zeal and fervor so long as they come in contact with the ceremonies of religion while their seriousness just evaporates as soon as these things are withdrawn. We don't want that to be a characteristic of our lives. We don't want to be those people that just show up in church just because we have to be there because we've got to sign in on our church attendance on Monday. We want to be the people that go to church because there we are seeking to enter into wholehearted worship and communion with our God. I would exhort you as believers to delight now in the opportunities you already have to worship in the house of God and even in the mornings when you read your word or spend time in prayer. Every time that you have right now to worship, make the most of those so that when you enter into a dry season of life and perhaps those things aren't available, you'll have something to look back on and remember what it used to be like. That's what David's doing here. He's in the wilderness and he's remembering what it used to be like when he could worship in the temple or in the sanctuary. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Here, David shared his thirst. He didn't keep this to himself. He understood that he was thirsting after God, and he was beginning to back off and incorporate other people into this relationship, realizing that it couldn't be his alone. We're going to look at verse 4 first, before we look at verse 3. The reason for that is because in this psalm, in the Hebrew, you can see that it's a chiasm. It's highlighting verse 3, but verses 2 and 4 
on either side of verse 3 are almost two halves of the same coin. They both are illustrating the same truth. In verse 2, God is blessing the believer through worship. But in verse 4, the believer is turning around and lifting up his hands to bless God as an act of worship. It's two halves of the same coin. The same thing's going on. Verse 2 is centering more on the place of worship, a localization of it. Verse 4 is showing that it should encompass all of our lives. It should be something that defines who we are. Pastor Wallace said a few weeks ago that we want to avoid being those people who are really big on praise, but then are small on worship. David got it right here. First, he entered into worship before God in verse 2, and then in verse 4, he followed it up with praise, bringing other people into this worship as well. In verse 3, he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Here, God's steadfast love takes center stage. This is the prime statement of the entire psalm. And some people have said that this is the prime psalm of the entire psalm book because all of the psalms are exalting and declaring the preeminence of God's steadfast love. It is something that cannot be surpassed. And that is what David says here. His God's steadfast love is better to him than life itself. And he's not just saying it's better than just being alive, but he's a king on the run in the wilderness. And I can guarantee he didn't bring his bed out of his palace and his entire truckload of all his dainties that he could eat from at the table of the king. He was out there with a whole lot less than what he used to have. And it would be the easiest thing in the world for him to just think back and wish and lust and long and be envious and covetous after all the things he used to have that God had stripped from him. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even say he has to have both of them. He just says he only needs the steadfast love of God. That's all he needs. He's learned to be content, just like Paul says to the Philippians. It's a lesson that he's had to learn, and it's been hard. It's taken him a lot of life to learn it so far. But I would exhort all of you as believers to prioritize your desire for God's steadfast love as well, just like David did. Because if you can prioritize God's steadfast love more than any other desire, then and only then will you learn to be content and satisfied because it's the only thing that can fill up our souls. Let's switch to verses 5 through, se- five through 7, our next uh, major heading. In verse 5, we see that David is committed to a future expectation. He's wallowing almost in despair in the, presence, in the present, but he's not despairing. He's in conditions that could lead to despair, but instead of that, he's looking forward to the future. In his mind's eye, he's already looked back at times of worship. Now he's looking forward to times when his soul is going to be satisfied. If anybody would be able to tell you what it's like to have a soul satisfied with fat and rich food, it'd be the king. And he's saying, I as the king know what it's like to be fully satisfied with food. And that is what I am expecting to be the reward, the repayment of God's steadfast love toward me. When I prioritize it, this is what I can expect in return, to be satisfied fully and completely. William Law, an old dead dude from England, once said, (laughs) if you don't feel strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. You have stuffed yourself with small things, and there's no room left for the things that are great. And David knew this. He knew that he had to put the steadfast love of God into the container of his life first. Otherwise, it would never fit on top of all those smaller things in life that fill it up so quickly. Sometimes for us, we might find ourselves in situations where everything around us is pretty bleak. It's desolate, and there's not a lot there to give us hope. But if we can look forward to the future with both faith and hope, grasping the things that God has promised to us, 
that will teach us to be confident during seasons of upheaval. And I would encourage you, do it. Trust in God's steadfast love. Be willing to give up other things for it. Let's look at verse 6. David says that he here is contemplating during quiet moments. David's contemplating during quiet moments. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. I have a question for you. Do you want to know what your real priorities are? We talk about them all the time, especially when we're trying to schedule. You've got to get your priorities right to get everything in there. But have you thought long and hard about what you do actually prioritize in your life? I have two questions for you that'll help you understand them. First, what was the last thing you thought about when you went to bed last night? What was the first thing you thought about when you woke up this morning? The last thing last night, the first thing this morning. And if you can remember what those things were, that'll tell you a lot about where your priorities are right now in your life. Our generation is afraid of silence. We don't like it. We try to drown it out all the time by listening to music. When we're sitting in our dorms, while we're walking back and forth from North Campus, while we're laying down for a while, while we're studying, while we're working out, while we're driving, while we're eating at a restaurant, while we walk around the mall, while we pray at church, while every movie we watch has a soundtrack running in the background, while we work, even while we're using a public restroom for crying out loud. Do you guys ever realize that? Like, you're in a mall, and then you walk in the bathroom, and it's like, oh, the music's still going. It never ends. <laughs> it's everywhere we go. And I'm not trying to say that music is wrong. I've got Spotify Premium myself. You know, music is great. It's good. <laughs> you can get a discount as a student. Um, but <laughs> you have to learn to spend your quiet moments well. David used them to meditate on God. Be careful that you don't fill up all the quiet moments that you have in your life. Leave some of them free to meditate on God. Silence is good for your soul. When the world around you is silent, that emptiness, that hollowness that we tend to feel inside, fill it up with God's steadfast love. Go to him. He's the one that will fill the emptiness that silence brings. I would exhort all of you as believers to be still. And know that he is God. So that way you can meditate more on his steadfast love. Let's look at verse 7. He says, He was confident in past experience. For you have been my help. Now if anybody had had God's help, it was David, throughout his entire life. When he killed the lion and the bear as a young shepherd boy, when he fought Goliath, when he was acting like a bumbling, drooling village idiot, just trying to escape this king of Ahish, the king of the Philistines, who somehow he had ended up in his city and had to escape from there. When he twice, two different times, took refuge in this little city of Ziph, trying to hide from Saul. And all the Ziphites were like, hey Saul, he's over here. Twice they, were, they betrayed him and they sold him out to Saul and he had to run for his life and barely made it out both times. And then of course there's all the other times when Saul was chasing him throughout the desert and the wilderness. All of those times, David could reflect on all of them and remember that God had been his help. Not only was he still alive, but now he was not just the anointed king of Israel. He was the ruling anointed king of Israel. He had received his rightful place on the throne. And even though he had now been evicted from it by his own son, he was still trusting in God's ability to provide for him. God had helped him. Pastor Steve Severance, next door at PBC, uh, is a great man of faith. And one time he invited uh, myself and a few other people from church over to his house for lunch. And while they were getting lunch ready and stuff, I noticed that there was a little basket of river stones in the corner of his kitchen on the floor. And I was kind of curious, you know, not something everybody has in their house. So I went over and looked at it, and I realized every single stone, which was about this big, had a little scene painted on it. It was a picture that they had painted, and every single picture 
referred back to a time in their life when they recognized that God had been their help. And they left it on the floor in their kitchen on purpose because they wanted their grandkids to pick up the stones and ask them what it was about so that they could remind both their own soul and teach their grandchildren about the fact that God provides for them. We need to do the same thing. Maybe not painting on river stones, but whatever it takes. Journaling, talking to people often about the things that God has done, making a scrapbook if that's your thing, doing a blog, spending time meditating on it. Whatever it takes, just the bottom line is do not forget how God has been your help. Don't ever forget it. David continues on and he says, In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. It's one of David's favorite phrases. He uses it in similar context four other times in the Psalms. 17, 36, 57, and 61. And generally speaking, every time he uses this phrase, he connects it with a conception of God as his refuge. God is the one that he flees to. However, David's not the first person to use this phrase. In fact, there's only one other person that uses it in the same way that David does. And it's Ruth, his great-grandmother. We learned that from those boring genealogies. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Boaz talks to Ruth and says, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother, your native land. You came to a people you didn't even know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's a beautiful image of what had happened to Ruth. In chapter 3, verse 9, we see Ruth again interacting with Boaz. This time, though, she snuck into his bed in the middle of the night, and he wakes up. And like any of you would be surprised to find someone else in your bed in the dorm, he says, what are you doing here? Who are you? What's going on? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, but implied, you know, you've taken me, the old guy. And Ruth has chosen to identify in Boaz a redeemer. And more than that, she's chosen to identify a redeemer that is giving to her refuge on God's behalf. Boaz is the one who has demonstrated personally and physically toward her a place of refuge for Ruth. And that's the exact same way that David's using it in this psalm. He has chosen to identify himself with God as his redeemer, and God is providing for David a place of refuge, a safe haven for David's soul. David could sing for joy in the shadow of God's wings. He was a shepherd boy. All over Israel, Saul used to have his face plastered on those wanted, dead or alive signs. He was betrayed on multiple occasions. In every circumstance, he had learned very well that God was his help. And that drove him to sing for joy. In the Hebrew, it's literally to shout for joy before everyone of the fact that God was his help. So I would exhort all of you, again, here as believers, to be intentional about remembering the times when God's already helped you because of his steadfast love. It will eventually, as you continue to do that and turn it into a habit, it will teach you to rely on him more. And it will give you a place to go when your soul needs shelter. Let's move now to the last section, verses 8 through 11. It says, My soul clings to you. My soul clings to you. Your, your Bible might be broken up a little bit differently, but we'll talk about that in a minute as far as the paragraph order here. But in verse 8, we see that David's soul is sustained by sovereignty. First he says, My soul clings to you. Then he says, Your right hand upholds me. The word that David uses for clings 
It's a pretty common word throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 2, Adam clings to Eve, his wife. In Ruth, again, we see verse, chapter 1, verse 14, everybody left Naomi, and there was nobody left except for Ruth, who clung to her. Six times throughout the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, the people of Israel are exhorted to cling to Yahweh, who was their God, their covenant-keeping God. Same word again. Lastly, or not lastly, but second to last, um, in Job chapter 41, verse 9, God is describing his magnificent creature, Leviathan. He's describing him to Job. And of course, Job is speechless. He has nothing to say. But in his description of Leviathan, God mentions that the children of men take up spears and arrows and darts and try and throw it at Leviathan. It's just like, pink, pink, pink. You know, nothing happens to Leviathan. He's impenetrable. In chapter 41, verse 9, it says that the scales of his back are joined. They cling to one another. They clasp each other, and they cannot be separated no matter how hard you try. That's this word again. And lastly, the most com- one of the most common uses is of an army that's defeated another army and is pursuing after them to exterminate every single last one of their fleeing men. The first army, the conquering army, is clinging after the other army. David, as we know, is a man of military prowess. He had been in many a battle. He was disallowed from building the temple because he had had so much blood spilled on account of the wars he was in. He knew exactly what it was like to pursue after something with all the passion that he could muster, going without food or water if he needed to. And all of that energy is the energy that he funnels into his relationship with God. He's not the Christian that says, We'll get to by reading that some, sometimes today. No, he's the Christian that pursues after God with a passion that puts blinders on him and causes him to block out everything in the world around him. He seeks after God with all that is in him. And yet, in the midst of that, that passionate pursuit, he recognizes he cannot obtain the prize for which he is seeking, God himself, unless he is sustained by God's sovereignty. He says that God's hand, his right hand, upholds him. David's clinging, and then like clinging after, in the Hebrew literally, this, this God, who is his own God, who is my God. And in the midst of that, he says, your right hand upholds me. He's giving every ounce of effort that he has, but he's not afraid to acknowledge that all of his efforts are worthless without the fact that God is holding him near. And that's the comfort that we can have in our relationship with God. We know that our God holds us near to himself. I would exhort all of you to remember that you can cling to God. And don't just remember it, do it. Cling after your God by the sustaining grace that he provides. You're not going to get to him any other way. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Talking about the deceivers. David's soul is clinging to God despite the deceivers. It says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. I'm going to read another quote to you. This one's from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, Pedantic commentators feel that these last verses are an unworthy blemish upon what was otherwise a particularly beautiful psalm, and some have suggested that they were tacked on later by a somewhat insensitive editor. But this is not the case at all. They simply bring us back to where we started, in the desert with David, and they remind us that this is a real world after all, and that if we are to be genuinely satisfied with God's loves, with God's love, it must not be in some never-never land, but right here, in the midst of this world's disappointments, frustrations, and dangers. That's where David found God. Now, I'd also like to build an argument that 
we can interpret Psalms 61 through 64 together as psalms that were all written during David's flight from Absalom or written regarding that time in his life. If we look at Psalms 61, 62, and 63, we see a constant theme of God's steadfast love, and it builds until in Psalm 63, it is put on the pedestal and is the highlight of the entire psalm. In Psalm 61, verse 7, God's steadfast love is appointed by God to watch over man. In Psalm 62, verse 12, steadfast love belongs to the Lord. In Psalm 63, verse 3, we finally see that steadfast love is better, in fact, than life itself. Throughout the Psalms, David has a favorite phrase when he talks about God's steadfast love. His steadfast love, chesed, is God's enduring love toward those who are his own. And he often pairs that with truth, the idea of truth. In Hebrew, it would be chesed ve'emet. It's steadfast love and truth. They come up over and over throughout the Psalms, like 13 different times. And that makes a lot of sense in the context of this psalm and in this situation. Because if we think about the kind of enemies that David is dealing with, it makes perfect sense that steadfast love wouldn't be included in Psalm 64, the last of these four psalms in a row. Because Psalm 64 deals with the downfall of God's enemies, with the downfall of David's enemies. And throughout these psalms, we can see that the driving characteristic of this enemy is that they're liars. In Psalm 62, verse 4, David says that his enemies take pleasure in falsehood because first they bless with their mouth, but inwardly they're, cur they're cursing. They're hypocrites. In Psalm 63, verse 11, what we're looking at right now, he says that the mouths of liars will be stopped. In Psalm 64, in verse 3, he says that they wet their tongue like swords and they aim bitter words. In verse 5, they talk of laying snares. Verse 8, they're brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. If you think about David's phrase, steadfast love and truth, we recognize that we've already seen steadfast love being portrayed throughout all three of these first psalms. And then in the first, fourth psalm, where you might expect there to be a declaration of God's truth, we see instead enemies, liars, being put down and destroyed. It's because God's truth prevails. Even when man seeks to oppose himself to God's purposes, and lies. Truth will prevail. And this makes, exact, this makes perfect sense in the context. Think about Absalom. Do you remember what he was doing? Absalom and all of his followers were lying. Absalom had stolen the hearts of the men of Israel by lying to every single one of them for four years straight, standing at the gate of Jerusalem. Absalom was a bold man. He was slandering David, his own father, at the gates of the city of David. He was a liar par excellence, and he knew it, and he stole all the, men, all the hearts of the men of Israel with those lies. If we understand the context of this psalm, that David is dealing with enemies who have lied in order to gain power, it makes perfect sense that he would speak now about his enemies whose mouths will be stopped. In fact, we should be more surprised, not by the fact that he brings up his enemies at all, but the fact that he's waited so long to do it. He spent all the rest of the psalm that we've looked at so far exalting in the steadfast love of God without distraction. He's on the run for his life. You would think he'd be thinking about that, but he's able to focus his mind on God, and he does it for almost the entire psalm. And then at the end of it, he does remember again, oh yeah, this is what's going on around me. But once again, because of God's nature, I know what the end of this situation will be. Those who are righteous will prevail. Those who are liars will be stopped. 
Moving on in verse 10, he says, They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. This is almost prophetic language. When we look back at the rest of the narrative in 2 Samuel and see what was going on, we can see the end that Absalom and his men found. The first half of this verse, where it says that they will be given over to the power of the sword, in the Hebrew literally means they're going to be poured like a vessel of water, just poured into the hands of the sword. The sword is just going to be glutting itself. How much water can you hold if you hold your hands like this and then people pour water on your hands? Not a lot. You waste most of it. And the sword was going to leave Absalom and his men wasted. There was not going to be anything left of the opposition that they mounted against David. In 2 Samuel, we see that's exactly what happened. Throughout the rest of the coup, Joab eventually gathers together David's scraggly band of men and mounts a resistance against the men of Absalom. And they overcome them. They beat them in battle. And Absalom's fleeing. He's fleeing on a donkey. And he's got tons of hair. And he gets caught in a tree. And his donkey just keeps going. And he's left hanging in the tree. Can't do anything about it. And Joab finds him and stabs him in the heart and kills him. And that's the end of Absalom's revolt against David. There was nothing left of them after that. Furthermore, they didn't even give them a proper burial. It's the prince. It's the king's own son for crying out loud. And all they did with him is throw him on the ground and put some big rocks on top of him and they left him. And all the rest of his men, like, who cares about them? If you're not even going to bury the prince, why would you bury his warriors? And they left him out there. And a few days later, after their bodies are rotting on the ground, the jackals find them. Jackals are scavengers, just like possums or vultures. They feed on dead flesh. The jackals found Absalom and his men, and they ate them, and they destroyed them. David knew that anyone who opposes God's steadfast love and truth would find their end to be just like Absalom's. They would be destroyed. They cannot stand against God's truth. I would exhort all of you as believers to make sure that you are among those who cling to God, trusting in his steadfast love, and keep doing it, even when at times he reveals the fact that the wicked are going to be absolutely destroyed. Yes, it will provoke pity and compassion in our hearts when we see their lives pinched out like a flame. But it should cause the believer to take joy in the fact that we serve a God who is so powerful that both his steadfast love and his truth will never be overcome. And any who oppose it will be utterly conquered and they'll be demolished. So then we see the result of all this in verse 11. David is rejoicing with the righteous. Rejoicing with the righteous. He says, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is a powerful declaration of David's faith in God. He hasn't yet seen the end of Absalom. He wrote this while he was in the wilderness. But he had faith in Absalom's downfall, and more than that, he had faith in the fact that he would live to see it and that he would be able to rejoice with the righteous. And that all who swore by the king's name, by God's name, through the king, would rejoice with him. They would be exulting. We see an even greater perspective on this idea in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. Because David was living before the cross. He had seen God's steadfast love for sure all throughout his own life. But he hadn't seen the grandest and most awe-inspiring display of God's love. His steadfast love poured out for man like Paul had. Paul knew about the cross, and he knew that God, in his steadfast love, had been willing to give up even his own son for the sake of those that he had chosen for salvation. In chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 of Romans, it says, What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Then he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the steadfast love of God. And now, on the other side of the cross, he could add, and so we can add with Paul, in Christ Jesus our Lord. For that is where the steadfast love of God is the most prominently and the most gloriously displayed in Christ's sacrifice on our behalf for sins when he had none of his own. Did you see that? David was glorying in God's steadfast love. And we can do that as believers too. But now we glory not just in the steadfast love that we see in our own lives, which is very great, but we glory in the steadfast love that was shown to us in the cross of Christ. For there we find the greatest manifestation of God's dedication toward us, his commitment to be our covenant-keeping God. The mouths of liars will be stopped. That's the end of the psalm. And if you think forward to the future, the day of judgment, the mouths of liars will truly be stopped. Every mouth will be changed to declare God's greatness. Every knee will be forced to bow at the name of Jesus, and every mouth will then declare and confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is the day that we look forward to as believers. And for those of you that maybe do not trust in the Lord, you see what the end is, so long as you do not trust in God's steadfast love. And I would exhort you, learn to trust in it. And don't just trust in it half-heartedly, but do what David did. And declare that God's steadfast love is better to you than life itself. It's better to you than anything that life offers. And don't go back on that. Trust that throughout the rest of your life, and God will reward those who are faithful to him. Because he sustains them. He holds them up with his own right hand. As we wrap up, I'd like to just draw to your attention and a very unique aspect of this psalm. When we think of prayer time, we almost immediately think of requests, especially when we're in a group praying together. When we pray, we generally bring before the Lord desires that are on our hearts and wishes for things to happen or to change. But if you look through this entire prayer to God, this entire psalm, not one single time does David ever ask for anything. His life is hanging by a thread right now, and he never asked God for anything. God's already given to him and to us, just like it says in 2 Peter, everything that's necessary for life and godliness. David knows it, and he glories in it. He doesn't have to ask God to provide for him because he knows that God has already done that and will continue to do it. He's trusting God. That's the kind of life that we want to learn how to live. If we want to be satisfied in God, if we want to be content in God, if we want to delight in the presence of our Savior, we've got to learn to do it without always just asking him for something every time we go before him. It's not wrong to ask for things. We should seek his hands. 
But first, we should be sure that we seek God's face and that we desire to be with him because he is our Father. So in light of that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We worship you because you are our God. And we can say that with joy, knowing that we have found the one whom our souls have been designed to love. More than that, God, we thank you and we glory in the fact that you have already given to us your steadfast love. Lord, help us never to forget that. Help us never to build up idols, physically or in our minds, that would overshadow our love for you as a result of the love that you've given to us. Lord, teach us to fear you, for you are a God who will conquer and exterminate all those who raise a hand in opposition against you. But Lord, for those who trust in you, who swear by your name and swear allegiance to you and to you alone, we know that in the future, and even now, our mouths will praise you with joyful lips, for we, God, are the ones that you have chosen to be able to exult in your name. God, help us to do that with full hearts of worship and adoration. And Lord, help us to do that throughout every moment of our lives. We ask you to help us in these things, for we cannot do it unless you sustain us. In Christ's name, amen.